This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Razib Khan's Unsupervised Learning. Thanks for listening to the ungated version of the Unsupervised Learning Podcast. If you want to read some essays on some of these topics, please check out razib.substack.com. Again, that's razib.substack.com. Thank you. Hi there. You know that genetics plays a huge role in our health, and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their children than ever before. I want to introduce you to ORCID. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now because you can reduce the risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at orchidhealth.com and use the code RAZIB, R-A-Z-I-B, when signing up to skip the wait list. Hey, everybody. This is Razib with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast, and I am here with a uh... You know, a very special guest. This is what we always say, but, you know, I do feel like it's very special. This is my second uh, Indo-European episode with Dr. David Anthony, who a lot of you know and love, uh, read his work, uh, have read his book uh, about the Horus Wheel and, uh, you know, the Indo-Europeans and all that stuff. And he's got a new book coming out and he's got all these papers he's on with David Wright. Uh, there just took a lot to, to, to get through. So um, let's just like start, although, uh, David, if you want to introduce your affili- affiliations, where you are right now, we can do that and then we can go. Okay. So uh, I'm David Anthony. Uh, the book you were talking about is The Horse, the Wheel, and Language. I just have to plug that once. Uh, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm retired from teaching at, at Hartwick College in Oneonta, New York, but I'm also a research associate with David Reich's lab in human evolutionary biology at Harvard. So those are my affiliations. Yeah, yeah. And so um, we got to talk, first of all, um, you know, I think first let's talk about a couple of things in terms of how you feel in terms of the high level changes over the last two years. Our last conversation was about two years ago. Uh, I also want to make sure and like hit the issue with the horses uh, because there's a lot of horse stuff. That's happened, and obviously it's important in the horse wheel language to get that right. I don't think it's totally resolved, but we've made some progress since the last time we talked. So can we get can we get to that stuff right now? Sure, I can, I'd be glad to talk about horses first. Uh, yeah, so uh, there was a big paper that horse, brought, horse horse before the horse before the cart. Not yes, the-, the horse before the cart. Uh, actually, literally, that's the way this conversation will go. Um, so yeah, so. Uh, there was this definitive study of horse DNA, Librato et al., uh, two years ago, um, uh, a project run by Ludovic Orlando, um, and uh, I was a co-author on that, um, and that definitively determined that the kind of horses we have today, called uh, DOM2, um, came together genetically in uh, the modern genetic profile around 22-2300 B.C., in the steppes north of the uh, Caspian Sea, the the Volga-Ural steppes uh, in what's today Russia. Um, But it treated that uh, as an event, uh, the appearance of Dom II at about 2200 BC. And the data they presented, so I disagree with the way they presented it. The data they presented actually suggests there's a long-phased evolution 
of domesticated horses in that region. Uh, starting in 5500 BC with wild horses and 4500 BC, you can see a couple of samples that are found with domesticated cattle and sheep. 4500 BC, a thousand years after the initial wild horses, and they're shifted in the Dom II direction. Uh, and then you have the Yamnaya and Mykop horses that are the direct ancestors of uh, Dom II, have almost all of the genetic traits of Dom II. And then finally, uh, Dom II itself at around 2200 BC. But so there's this long history before that, and people were riding horses uh, before uh, Dom II appeared. And that's, of course, the important aspect of how uh, horses affected human culture. Uh, and uh, so then recently, just last year, there was a, a study by Troutman et al. that I was a co-author on, uh, organized out of uh, uh, University of Helsinki uh, by Volker Hyde. Uh, and uh, that showed for the first time pathologies in the human skeleton that are related to riding uh, that affect mainly the lower back, the pelvis, and the upper legs. Uh, and uh, some of them are pathologies, like the articulation between uh, the femur and, and the pelvis. Some of them are just muscle changes, uh, but they're muscle changes that are uh, typical of uh, horseback riders. So you begin to see that. Uh, we had uh, five cases in Yamnaya, and there were two cases that were pre-Yamnaya. Uh, one, the Tsongrad individual in Hungary, 4200 BC, with all of the lower trunk muscular traits of a habitual rider. I was not surprised by that uh, because the samples in Ludovic Orlando's um, Librato et al. paper uh, that were dated to 4500 BC showed a substantial shift in the direction of Dom II. And you put that together with a rider dated to about the same period, it, it's not so surprising. Uh, so I think riding goes way back uh, in the steps. And of course, that allowed people to move around a lot more. I don't think that they were using horses in warfare, though, because uh, genetically, these horses were more skittish. Uh, the traits that are defined by Dom II relate to uh, back architecture, making it easier to carry a rider, and to mood, uh, making it uh, easier for the horse to tolerate uh, the sudden movements and noises that are associated with humans. Um, and the Yamnaya horses were probably more skittish. They didn't have the full suite of genetic traits. So I think they probably were harder to ride. Probably you didn't ride them. If you were faced with an aggressive individual coming towards you uh, on those horses, you probably dismounted uh, to deal with that individual. But the horse could still get you there much, much faster than anybody expected. And that's a huge advantage in uh, tribal warfare. So, I, so yeah, let me, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, you know, you've obviously, you know, and like some of this you hinted at at the previous in the previous uh, podcast two years ago, because obviously the, it was in preparation. You had some of the data. So let me uh, review or summarize and see if I'm getting this correctly in terms of your own perspective. So let's say about 4000 years ago, we have a big bang of these light war chariots, Sintoshna light war chariots in the Volga Euro region with particular types of horses that are very, very um, adapted to being hooked up on these chariots. They're larger, they're a little bit more coordinated. Uh, their docility or um, the ability to be directed 
uh, is more domesticated, more human. And this is the uh, star phylogeny of the modern horses, right? Yeah. We see this especially in the Y chromosome with the stallions. Uh, but earlier, there were other horse lineages. And obviously, we know the Mongolian wild horse, which is related to the bowtie horse. There were European horses. Uh, there were horses in the New World uh, at the at the beginning of the Holocene. They went extinct. They were probably eaten. But in any case, um, so, so the horse lineage equines are all over the place. And uh, what you're suggesting is it was actually earlier than the Sintashta cultural explosion. There were also halting earlier events that made a difference, a marginal, I mean, actually more than a marginal difference in terms of, uh, you know, social technology, in terms of their mobility that gave the Yamnaya peoples, these steppe peoples, an advantage, even if they didn't have the light war horse chariot that the Sintashta spread about 4,000 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the Sintashta horses were fully modern in the sense that they could uh, tolerate. Uh, there's every evidence that the earliest chariots around 2000 BC at Sintashta were, were used in warfare. Uh, there's weapons buried with them. And so to get uh, a horse, an animal whose evolution is, the, is, is based on their skittishness, you know, they... They startle very fast, and then once they startle, they're the fastest things in uh, the Eurasian continent in terms of getting away from a threat, and that was their survival mechanism. So, so to get an animal like that to go forward into a threat, into warfare, took a lot of genetic manipulation, and so it happened gradually. You don't, you, you, we shouldn't think of uh, domesticated horses as being a single thing. Uh, so, I, I. I, I think it's fairly clear that Yamnaya people were riding horses. They certainly had the uh, pathologies associated with horseback riding. And, and even earlier people probably were riding horses. But I think it was probably a trick at the time. You know, it, it didn't spread quickly because it was thought of, we might think of this the way we uh, today think of um, camel riding. We think of it as associated with a particular area maybe a particular ethnic groups, and it's not something that everybody is going to copy and pick up and do. It's thought of something as, that's difficult. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, maybe elephant riding might be the same kind of thing. It's, it's, uh, it's seen as a skill that's, that, that you find in a particular part of the world primarily, um, and you don't expect to find it in North America or in Italy, uh, although you do with Hannibal. <laughs> Um, but um, but horseback riding in the beginning, I think, was in that category. It, it wasn't the way we think of horseback riding. It was more difficult. And so only people who had really spent a lot of time around horses uh, were very good at it. Well, okay, so uh, let me – I'm going to – Stick out horses just a little bit more. Horses are super important, obviously. Uh, so let me uh, posit something partly from reading you, uh, Christian Chris Johnson, uh, you know, watching people like Dan Davies' podcasts and stuff like that, and the Corios, uh, these young men. So I'm imagining uh, two modalities, and tell me if this is totally wrong. One modality would be uh, kind of young braves. Uh, maybe they get on some ponies, and they use the ponies to move rapidly across the landscape to do their raids. And, uh, you know, they're not cavalry. Uh, they're not fighting from the ponies. They use the ponies to move. And then there's another modality where you have these ponies um, uh, maybe dragging carts, uh, maybe more domestic usage. I don't know. I know they have oxes, so they don't need ponies necessarily. Uh, yeah, so I think you're essentially right. The There's a modality where you can use horses in warfare even if you're not cavalry. 
uh, just to get to the place. And actually, when you look at Plains Indian uh, warfare, um, very often, you know, they brought boys who held onto the horses while the men went and conducted the raid, and they came back and they rode away. Uh, the other, though, I think the more important usage of horses early on was that they greatly increase the efficiency of animal herding. So if you're herding uh, cattle and sheep on foot, uh, there's a limited number, even if you if you use a dog, you can expand it, but there's a limited number of sheep that the herder can handle. Um, and if you get on horseback, the estimates, like for Mongolian herders, are that they can handle two to three times more animals. So without an increased input in labor, horses allow you to increase your herd sizes by two or three times. And then you have a surplus in animals that you can use for political relationships, gift giving, and feasting. And that's just as important as the uh, warfare aspect of early riding. The fact that it made it possible to be rich, to have a surplus counted in animals uh, as a nomad. And so the very invention, the, the earliest stage in the invention of a step nomadism, which I think the Yamnaya people were the first people to uh, really fully commit to a nomadic lifestyle. Um, uh, that was made possible partly by horses and then partly by wheeled vehicles. Wheeled vehicles are for your heavy uh, residential needs, essentially moving home, uh, food and water, uh, fuel, uh, and the horses are for scouting and for making your herds bigger and for warfare. And you put those two forms of transportation together and it looks like they came together for the first time right around 3300 BC, just at the beginning of Yamnaya. And that's one of the major reasons that Yamnaya took off uh, the way it did. They had invented a way of exploiting grasslands that nobody had ever had before. Yeah. So, um, you know, just to recap, I think the way that I like to, that, that I would think of what you're just saying right now is obviously, for example, in England, uh, there were fossil fuels, there was coal, and it wasn't a major resource uh, until the 18th century. Like sometimes people would use it to fire, but it wasn't industrial. The energy was not unlocked. Once the energy was unlocked, then all of a sudden Britain became this world superpower. And so what you're positing right now is the horse is basically uh, triggering an economic revolution, an economic revolution that has all these knock-on effects that might be able to explain uh, why the Yamnaya, why, you know, like I've done some back-of-the-envelope math, how much like Yamnaya ancestries in the world based on their, and it's orders of magnitude of all of the peoples that were alive 5,000 years ago. You know, we have hundreds and hundreds of millions of people uh, that are Yamnaya, like if you just like do the multiplication of the math, right? Uh, so obviously, you know, economic history is driving demography here. Um, it's a little less, um, maybe a little less sexy than uh, Corneo's, uh, you know, pony riders, <laughs> but uh, it's just as important, right? And so um, let's talk about the wheel, horse wheel and language. Let's just go in sequence right now because we got this thing going right now. So um, what's going on with the wheel, with the cards since like, you wrote your book back oh, like 15 years ago? Okay, so there's a there's been a lot more um, wheel vehicle finds in the steps. Uh, the Yamnaya culture was not only um, the the culture that had the direct ancestors of Dom two horses; they also had the first wheel vehicles in the steps. And uh, wheel vehicles were invented after about 3500 BC. There's no evidence for them before that, um, and. Uh, after that, they become very widespread between, say, 3400 B.C. and 3100 B.C. You find wheeled vehicles from Mesopotamia to Denmark. 
and a lot of them in uh, the in uh, the steppes uh, north of the Caspian and the Black Seas to present day uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, so wheel vehicles uh, spread across the um, the steppes with Yamnaya, and they were central to Yamnaya ritual ideas because they're they're about 300, 400 uh, wagon burials in Yamnaya uh, graves where they put either the whole wagon or parts of the wagon. Uh, in the grave with them. And that just shows how central uh, the wagon uh, was to uh, Yamnaya identity. Now, the, these wagons were solid-wheeled. You know, they were heavy. They weren't, they weren't racing vehicles. Um, but they were meant to carry food, water, supplies, and maybe provide a place for people to get out of the rain and, and to actually sleep inside. Uh, so they weren't meant to be racing vehicles. They were probably pulled by oxen and not by horses. Um, we didn't have the proper kind of collar to put on a horse so it could carry really heavy loads uh, without choking off the bottom of its windpipe. Um, uh, an ox yoke, if you put it on a horse, it, it hits on the bottom of the horse's neck and chokes the horse if you put really heavy weight on it. With The, the horse collar, the round horse collar, uh, was a medieval invention. So uh, before the medieval period, horses were mainly used for riding or very light traction not for pulling things like these Yamnaya wagons. So you have to imagine the Yamnaya people kind of moving from one campsite to another uh, with all of their domestic needs in the wagon and with uh, the people mounted on horses. Uh, and that would allow them to spread their herds out uh, and uh, really efficiently manage very large herds. So if you manage large herds, though, if your herds grow in size so that you can have a surplus you have to keep them moving unless you're going to fodder them and there's no evidence that uh, steppe people foddered uh their herd animals uh even up to genghis khan he's described as as uh letting the herds out in the winter time on the steppe uh and uh uh so the uh the yamnaya people had these um uh horses that that made the herds larger and the, in order to feed the herds you had to keep them moving because they ate up the grass in any one area so just the fact that they became rich in animals sort of impelled them towards a way of life that kept the animals moving so they wouldn't eat everything up in a local area i don't think it was a form of geographic determinism by the way i'd see it's just the way there's uh, in the steppes, before Yamnaya came, everybody lived in the river valleys. And it's sort of like in the United States, the Missouri River Valley going through the plains. Um, all of the agricultural towns were in the Missouri River Valley, not out on the high plains. Because uh, that was the only place you could grow corn. The same way, in the Eurasian steppes, there are these large river valleys, the Volga, the Dnieper, the Don, that cut down through the steppes from north to south and flow into the Black and Caspian Seas. And it's in those river valleys that the whole Eneolithic population before Yamnaya, everybody lived in the river valleys. That was the place where you had shelter from winter winds. There were deer, um, there was fish, uh, there was firewood, there was, there was resources in the river valleys, but they're very narrow. And so the population gets to a certain size, and you have to start looking at the grasslands in between, and nobody was exploiting that until Yamnaya. Uh, and then Yamnaya figured out a way just to keep moving, uh, move the animals across those uh, pastures. And so that what had been wild open steppe became 
a pasture that belonged to somebody. Uh, and you had to invent the entire economic and political system for managing uh, resources that previously hadn't belonged to anybody, but now a lot of different emerging Yamnaya people are beginning to claim these places. So I think that's part of the emergence of Yamnaya too, the ability to uh, manage uh, group migrations through each other's territories uh, without breaking out into warfare. Um, I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna move to uh, uh, now. I'm gonna move to to linguistics, language, and okay. uh, you know. Um, so I want to talk about the Hagerty paper, um, and I'm just gonna uh, give a little uh, uh, context here. So uh, over the last twenty years, um, there's been twenty years. I don't know more than twenty years. So uh, there have been a group of uh, linguists and evolutionary biologists that have come together. They've used, um, you know, let me just say Bayesian phylogenetic methods. Like I've used these methods for genetics myself. It's part of my training. These are very, very tried and true, tested methods. So basically, the way that these things work is you have a bunch of models, you have a bunch of parameters, you run a bunch of simulations. Uh, they can't be exhaustive because you don't have billions of years, but they have ways to sample the parameter space, try to you know get the best, highest probability distributions. Um, and so it's kind of like a formal way of um, testing your hypotheses and uh, figuring out what is the most probable given your data. Um, and so they've been doing this uh, with Indo-European languages in particular, going back, uh, you know, the, the first papers that made the media, the New York Times date back 20 years. And um, they showed, for example, that the Indo-European languages are from Anatolia and they date to 10,000 years. I mean, this is like the earlier ones. Um, yeah. Which, okay, it probably turned out to be wrong. So there's a new one out, and they've used some new methods. The paper is in science. It's called Language Trees with Samples Ancestors Support a Hybrid Model for the Origin of Indo-European Languages. First author is Paul Hagerty. There are some DNA-type people, uh, people that are on DNA papers, like Wolfgang Hawk, uh, Johannes Krauss that are on it. So, you know, they have some legit people there that are outside of the computational linguistics. People have been asking me what I think of the paper. Like, I just wanted to preface the beast, the methods that they used. I've used these methods with genetic data. They're great for genetic data. Um, but I have some, the results always seem really weird for linguistic data. That's what I'm going to say. And now I'm going to let David uh, comment on it. <laughs> well, I think that's a, I think that's a legitimate comment. They seem weird for linguistic data. Uh, I was um, at a uh, Indo-European conference at UCLA uh, last November. Uh, UCLA has an annual Indo-European conference, and I was a speaker there last November, and Russell Gray was a speaker there. And so I heard an hour-long presentation of this new science paper uh, last November, and, and I got to also spend two days uh, listening to the discussions of the linguists who were there. Quite a variety of Indo-European linguists uh, uh, came to uh, the conference. I didn't hear anybody who was convinced by the dating. They were all impressed by the methodology, but they thought that it yielded really strange um, dates for the origins of the Indo-European languages and for uh, the splits between uh, the different branches, the daughter branches uh, in Indo-European. Uh, I, I thought the same thing. Um, one of the... Uh, uh, things that you have to do in order to accept their chronology is uh, to discard 
of what's called linguistic paleontology, which they do explicitly uh, in their supplementary materials. Um, uh, and they say that you can't attach, you can't uh, find the meaning of any reconstructed word in uh, Proto-Indo-European. Now, since I was a graduate student, one of the things that attracted me to this subject, and I'm, I'm an archaeologist, I'm not a geneticist, I'm not a linguist, but one of the things that attracted me to this uh, subject matter is the reconstruction of Proto-Indo-European with its meanings, uh, which give you a window, a verbal window, into the minds, conceptions, and beliefs of an entirely prehistoric society, otherwise known only through archaeology because they had no writing. And so their language has been reconstructed through uh, the comparative method. And I thought, wow, here's, here's this uh, word list. It's mainly the words that I'm interested in uh, that tell me what these people were talking about. And it included things like wheeled vehicles, which didn't exist uh, before 3500 BC. So Proto-Indo-European had to be dated after 3500 BC because it had a, a rich vocabulary for wheeled vehicles, at least a semantic field of at least five terms, probably more like eight. Um, and most linguists accept that you can take the Proto-Indo-European root uh, queklos and, and say that meant wheeled vehicle. It means its daughters, uh, the daughters of that word, mean wheel or wheeled vehicle uh, in the daughter language. is the same with axle and a, a list of other words referring to wheeled vehicles. But in the Hegarty paper, they say you can't do that, that, that uh, you will never know what the meaning of a reconstructed Indo-European word was other than something very vague like the thing that turns. But um, most linguists don't buy that. And all of the references they gave to critics of linguistic paleontology, all of the references were from articles that are more than 25 years old. Um, they, they didn't, uh, I think there's one reference to somebody who was uh, in this century. Uh, and, um, uh, and for instance, the word queklos has um, a reduplicated part. The K is duplicated in queklos. Uh, it is duplicated, and it's sort of like if you took the verb turn, the turning thing, and you wanted to make a word for wheel out of it, and instead of saying the turner, you said the turnter, and you duplicated that T. That's a very specific thing. All of the roots that are in, in the daughter languages have that little trick in them. And it, that's not going to be independently invented by the daughters after they've broken up without any contact with each other. And that's what he's proposing uh, happened with uh, Queklos. It's, it's, I, I just don't see how... Um, how such a rich body of evidence can be discarded. Uh, and, and, and if you use the wheeled vehicle vocabulary in the Indo-European, it dates at least the late phase of uh, Proto-Indo-European to after 3500 BC. The Anatolian languages, which split off in the earliest split, that split might have happened before wheeled vehicles were invented because the Anatolian languages don't have that vocabulary. There's a recent paper by Don Ringe also that's... Um, talking about computational phylogenetic linguistics, and he was one of the first uh, people to try to do that. And he pointed out that uh, the results, particularly the ages, uh, the numbers, are not robust. They have very large uncertainty margins on them. And with a very small change in methodology, you can produce dramatic changes in the ages.
Um, and uh, consequently, the results are not, uh, you, you can't set them in stone. Uh, so I, I, I have a hard time accepting uh, the new paper. There's a, there's a new response that is just coming out on the internet now by Alexei Kassian, who's also a computational phylogenetic linguist. Um, and he he's already uh, written a response to it, and he's quite critical. Um, so, um, I I don't see it as a as a definitive statement by any means. Yeah, let me let me say a couple of things about it. Uh, first of all, I want to uh, mention I don't know what you think about this book, but uh, uh, Indo-European Controversy: Facts and Fallacies in Historical Linguistics by uh, Asia uh, Parasveg and Martin Lewis. Uh, they wrote a I mean basically it's a book length. I don't want to say Jeremiah, but a little bit against computational linguistics and basically the use of lexicon. So when you put certain types of data in, your output in these sorts of methods, which are very great, depends on the data. And so let me just make it explicit for the listener, the viewer out there. Uh, genetics um, is constrained by Mendel's laws to um, evolve uh, with mutation and drift and all these other things and also the inheritance in very, very specific ways. And so when you use discrete genetic data, you can make phylogenetic inferences that are pretty good, I think, partly because it's a very constrained system. Obviously, with lexicon and cultural evolution, it's not quite like that. And so I think you're naturally going to get bigger intervals because it's a much more plastic, malleable system. Okay, that's one thing that I'm going to put out there. And I'm not saying garbage in, garbage out, but I'm kind of saying that. I don't want to say garbage because lexicon is not garbage. That's real data. But, you know, there are limitations there. The second thing is um, I want to just like, I'm not a linguist like you, obviously, but there's certain things that in their tree, if you look at the, um, the, the divergence, just to be explicit, um, the, esti the median estimate for the start of Indo-European divergence is more than 5,000 BC, which is rather on the early side. But another thing is one of the deepest divergences is with Tokaria. And this jumps out at me because I don't know what you think, but um, with the Afnasivo culture, we know when they arrived in the Altai, they are probably the most likely candidate for the ancestors of the Tokarians. And they arrived not, you know, 5000 BC. So what's going on with that, right? Like just little things like that jump out. Yeah, so, so I agree completely on the subject of Tokarian. Yeah, they have Tokarian um, splitting off at 5000 BC. Um, and uh, there's nothing happening in the Altai or anywhere out there at 5000 BC. They're all hunters and gatherers and nothing new is introduced at that at that point. So there's no archaeology to go along with that date. Uh, and generally throughout the paper, they ignore archaeology. They just ignore it. Uh, the, 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 there's no archaeological uh, explanation for how and when these splits uh, happened. And conversely, uh, uh, the, the biggest demographic event in the last 5,000 years in uh, Eurasian genetic and demographic history was the expansion of steppe ancestry uh, around 3000 BC, between 3000 and 2000 BC, and that's just a fact. And according to their uh, version of things, the Indo-European languages were already completely diversified by then. I mean, Baltic, uh, Balto-Slavic had split off from the ancestor of uh, Germanic, Celtic, and um, uh, Italic uh, by 4500 BC, a, a thousand years before uh, the, the expansion of steppe ancestry. So uh, in their system, although they call it a hybrid uh, hypothesis, it doesn't really include 
the Yamnaya expansion at all. Everything happens before the Yamnaya expansion, and and therefore the Yamnaya expansion, which had, was this big demographic event, had no effect linguistically. Um, so uh, the the linguistic changes that they do have are not correlated with any archaeological phenomena, and the archaeological and genetic phenomena that we do have indicating a big change are supposedly happened without any li linguistic effect. And uh, that disassociation is um, really difficult for me to accept. All right, so um, let's move to uh, Southern Arc paper, the genetic history of the Southern Arc, bridge between West Asia and Europe. This came out last summer, the summer before this summer. So you have a, I mean, I know you went through the supplements, you got a lot of thoughts on this, but I, I, I'm gonna um, read the conclusion yeah. For the for the listener. Uh, this is by Yosef Lazaridis, our friend Yosef Lazaridis, a friend of mine. You know, I know he's a friend of yours. I know you know him, um, obviously out of the Reich Lab. Um, all ancient Indo-European speakers can be trans traced back to the Yamnaya culture. You probably kind of agree with that. Um, uh, whose southern who's south, south, southward expansions into the southern arc left a trace in the DNA of the Bronze Age people of the region? However, the link connecting the Proto-Indo-European speaking Yamnaya with the speakers of Anatolian languages was in the highlands of West Asia, the ancestral region shared by both. Well, let me um, describe really quickly the figure for the listener. So uh, there's a figure which basically shows the whole Black Sea region. You see the Caucasus um, and uh, the Kuban Steppe, south of the, the north of the Caucasus, and you see Armenia, Proto-Indo-Anatolians, and there's a movement north into the Pontic steppe between the Dnieper and the, the Volga and the Don region. And then there's reflux or like a migration out. So it's like multiple waves. And there's a really complicated way that they look at different streams of ancestry to figure out what came where in sequence. And I'm not going to try to verbally recapitulate it because uh, it's like jug it's juggling a lot of things. I'm not going to lie. I've read this paper multiple times and it's really hard to like remember a lot of the earlier aspects of it. So can you talk a little bit about it, your take? Yeah. So uh, first, let's just pick up on that point you just made. Um. You're, you're by no means an uh, unskilled or amateur reader, and you had a hard time uh, comprehending what was in this paper. Um, and I think that, you know, the big papers that have like uh, 700 samples or, or even 500 samples or, or maybe even 300 samples are just too big uh, for uh, even sophisticated readers to comprehend everything that's being said. There's too many points being made over too many regions and too many time periods uh, with too many small exceptions to each one. Uh, and, and so I've found myself to be embarrassed that papers that, that I'm a co-author on made small points that I'd totally forgotten. And, and uh, you know, I read these papers, and but I had forgotten that the paper said that. Uh, and uh, that's kind of what you're referring to. This, there's just so much said in, in the Southern Arc papers that I, I think it's too much. It's too much to consume. Uh, but one of the things that, they, that you're pulling out the origin of the Indo-European languages, um, there, was a, um, the, there was a certain amount of conflation going on there. There's, there's movements of uh, Caucasus ancestry into the steppe very early but it doesn't account for much very early. So it's like, you know, 5% uh, 
of uh, ancestry of a variety of hunter-gatherers uh, in the Dnieper Valley, in the Volga Valley. There's a little bit of Caucasus ancestry out there by, you know, 6,000 BC. And that's a different kind of, that's probably Caucasus real hunter-gatherers. And they're poorly documented. Whoever it was who, it, they're, they're not sampled genetically. Whoever it was who imparted that little bit of ancestry. And then around uh, when, when the first time we have a real population of southern farmers, when I say southern, I mean south of the North Caucasus Ridge, which is this uh, glaciated, permanently glaciated ridge, very difficult to get across, uh, that goes between uh, the Middle East, essentially, and the Eurasian steppes. And the first time farmers went over that ridge and settled the, the North Caucasus slopes facing the steppes was about 4,500, 4,700 BC. And we have DNA from those people. Um, and it's very much uh, Southern DNA, Caucasus DNA, and not uh, steppe DNA. And from then on, starting about 4,500 BC, that kind of ancestry leaks up into the steppes at a much higher rate. So that's that's what you have to start looking at. Is that is that does that have something to do with the origins of Proto-Indo-European? That mixture of ancestries of the first Caucasus farmers. There is a culture called Mycoc that starts around 3800 BC, and they're different. I'm talking about the first farmers who are much simpler uh, than Mycoc. And during that period, there's a lot of evidence that there was a lot of back and forth archaeological evidence that there's a lot of back and forth movement and trade there. Um, so it's conceivable that they shared a common language. Uh, you could put a, a homeland in a, in a region that would include both the steppes north of the Caucasus and these early farmers coming in into uh, the steppes. Um, and you can't really say whether it would be a Caucasus language that would be adopted by the steppe people or the, a steppe language that would be a adopted by the Caucasus people based on DNA uh, or yeah. archaeology even. It's, it's difficult to say. My only guidance is that the languages that we know today and have known since ancient history in the Caucasus are not Indo-European languages, with the exception of Armenian. Um, they're, they're quite different. Hurrian, um, uh, Haddock, uh, the Northwest Caucasian, the Northeast Caucasian, Kartvelian, these are, these are distinctly non-Indo-European languages. And so I would guess that the first farmers who uh, went over uh, the, the North Caucasus in 4500 BC probably spoke a language that wasn't Indo, an ancestor of Indo-European. It might have been a substrate of Proto-Indo-European and affected the form of Proto-Indo-European, but but not the actual ancestor of Proto-Indo-European. And, and I think that um, uh, Joseph Lazaridis thinks that it might have been Proto-Indo-European. That's where we differ. It's not a huge difference. Um, and uh, it, it's going to have to be solved by much, much better uh, genetic sampling and archaeology uh, in that yeah. area. Yeah. Well, I mean, so let me... Um... I want to. I want to put you. You mentioned the Mycop. I want to give a little context for the uh, for the listener. Um, you know, this period before three thousand BC, thirty one hundred BC. Uh, you know, we talk about history. History exists, and then we have prehistory. Obviously, it overlaps depending on where you're talking about. Uh, the Mycop people were part of this trade network uh, that was really, really humming. Uh, 
prehistorically between 3,100 and like, let's say 4,000. And they were the northern end of this network that included the Uruk civilization, which was actually a pretty big deal. Uh, we don't have any writing from the period, so we don't know politically, socially what was going on, but it clearly expanded out of what we call today Mesopotamia. Uh, and they're, 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 um, the towns in places like in Syria, in parts of Anatolia, are replica copies of the Uruk civilization. And then there was like a massive, massive collapse and then eventually out of that, over time, evolved what we call the Sumerian civilization or Sumerians might have been intrusive. We don't know. We don't know. But all of a sudden writing shows up, um, writing that we can decrypt and we can read and like the names there, you know, Uruk, the, the city itself, Epic of Gilgamesh is from this period. But this is actually in the wake of this massive collapse. The massive collapse also tends to correlate with what happened in Europe during the end of the Neolithic around 3000 BC. So there was there was a massive, massive disruption around 3000 BC in large parts of Western Eurasia. And um, I'm not saying that this is like, you know, um, the flood or the collapse of like, you know, the end of paradise or whatever we want to say. But uh, I do think some of the myths, because we have myths from the Bronze Age that are not that much further on. And so when they're talking about, you know, great empires and cities, I suspect that they are recollections of something real um, during the Uruk civilization. And so there was a whole world uh, before the Indo-Europeans. And in my conversation with um, J.P. Mallory, actually, a couple of years ago, around the same time I talked to you, uh, one thing that he said to me, being an archaeologist, is, you know, one of the reasons we talk about graves with the Indo-Europeans all the time is there wasn't much going on um, in the early period of their expansion. Um, you know, we had these massive megalith civilizations. Uh, we had, you know, the Cucatinia, Tripolia, these big villages in Romania and Moldova. And, um, you know, these these nomads, Badlax people show up and, you know, um, they're kind of like reappropriating these megaliths in some way. So, you know, people like to talk about how, oh, these great Indo-Europeans came and they came and they conquered and all that stuff. But there was a lot that happened before. Um, that kind of set, I think, uh, the terms for the world that they're expanding into. And I think we need to keep that keep that in mind. Um, so speaking of that world, um, I want to talk about corded ware. I want to talk about globular amphora. Uh, there's a new paper. I don't think it, actually it's a preprint. Um, the Stone Age Eurasia preprint. I'll, I'll put a link to it. Uh, Christian Christiansen's on it, along with uh, 2,700 other people. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say about some of these preprints because, uh, you know, there's like one author, there's like three authors I know, and then like a village, you know. So um, I don't know if the modern samples are from the authors themselves. There's enough individuals, but uh, this preprint talks about globular amphora and corded ware and how that's the Neolithic ancestry. So there is uh, this is part of the Southern Art paper, but also it seems to be expanding this idea that the Indo-European expansion, the Yamnaya expansion, had some internal structure where perhaps the Armenians, um, I saw a recent HDNA paper about the Illyrians, the Albanian region, and maybe the Greeks that uh, do not have, um, and also the Afanasivo, obviously, uh, in the Altai. So maybe the Proto-Tarcarians do not have the Neolithic farmer ancestry of the globular amphora, whereas almost all the other Indo-Europeans, like in Europe, and then obviously the Indo-Iranians have the globular amphora ancestry. So the corded ware is like one branch, and then the other branch are other uh, other offshoots of the Yemenia. What do you think about this model? 
Yeah, I think that um, Yamnaya is is clearly the ancestor of almost everything, with the exception of the Anatolian languages, which we're, we're, we're still not sure how they ended up in Anatolia, and there's debate about that. So if we just set those aside, and we talk about the origin of what's commonly called core Proto-Indo-European, or nuclear Proto-Indo-European, or I call it late Proto-Indo-European, that's, Yamnaya is the root of all um, other, all existing uh, Indo-European languages. And I think what the DNA shows, which models onto what you would expect from linguistics, is that there's an initial uh, fairly massive migration into southeastern Europe, as far west as the Tisa River, uh, where it seems to solidify and stop. And that's a, that's a, that's an ecological boundary on the west side of the, on the east side of the Tisa River is the Offal, the a big plain, a very steppe-like region. And on the west side is broken uplands. It's a, it's a very different uh, topography. So they stop at the Tisa River on the west. They go as far as the Altai Mountains in Mongolia, uh, where they appear as the Afanasievo culture. Um, and all of this happens the 5,000 kilometers across the heart of Eurasia, huge migration, um, uh, changing the demography within all of those regions uh, between about 3,100 and 2,900 BC. It's a very rapid uh, move. And then young, a mixed population uh, becomes corded ware uh, that has 70% Yamnaya ancestry and then has globular amphora ancestry and maybe a few others. Um, and corded ware actually did, uh, besides covering most of Central and um, uh, Northern Europe, uh, corded ware offshoot, Fatianovo, actually did a, a counter-movement. Uh, they were started on the Baltic and went back through the Russian forest, back towards the east, introducing uh, a cattle pastoralism to what had been hunter-gatherers in the Russian forests. Uh, that movement went back into the steppes, carrying corded ware ancestry with it, and then that mixed corded ware ancestry ultimately became uh, showed up in, in uh, South Asia. Now, the population that stayed behind in the steppes uh, when the migration to the West happened, uh, turned into late Yamnaya and Catacomb. They did not have the Corded Ware ancestry. Um, and uh, a group of them, according to the Southern Ark paper, this is one of the discoveries, I think, in the Southern Ark paper, a group of them moved um, south into what is today Armenia and is probably the origin of the Armenians. Uh, around... Um, uh, uh, 2500 BC, which is just when uh, archaeologically you see the introduction of large kurgans with wheeled vehicles and horses underneath them. And people have always, archaeologists have always wondered if this represented an intrusion of stepped people. We were not able to determine that before because we didn't have the DNA. Now we do have DNA, and it was an intrusion of stepped people. Uh, so it's very likely, and given the relationship linguistically, between Armenian, Greek, and uh, Indo-Iranian, it's very easy to put uh, movement south into uh, the Caucasus around 2500 BC, connected to Syntasha just up to the northeast, and to Proto-Greek off to the west, um, all of them sharing uh, common ancestry, uh, with Syntasha having more um, uh, corded ware ancestry. Uh, and, and when the uh, steppe people moved into what is today Armenia, they carried with them the Yamnaya Y chromosome, the Y haplogroup, uh, Z2103, which is typical of Yamnaya. 
The only place it survives in any appreciable frequency today is Armenia, where it's very widespread and it's died out everywhere else. And, and that's, a, that's a, a, a tracer of this uh, very ancient uh, movement of people off the steppes uh, into Armenia. And I think it also tends to support uh, what linguists had previously determined that was that there is a branching relationship between Armenian, Greek, and probably Indo-Iranian. That puts them all right there in that same stretch of the steppes around, say, 2500 BC. Uh, it also solves some other problems. Um, you know, there's the relationship between Balto-Slavic and Indo-Iranian. And it's always seemed odd that linguists found this very close relationship in terms of linguistic structure between uh, Balto-Slavic and Indo-Iranian, given that they're so far apart uh, in the modern world. But when this Fatyanovo, um, uh late courted where uh, migration was happening from the Baltic back into the steppes to become Sintashta, at around 2000 BC, Sintashta and the Fatyanovo people uh, who came from the Baltic were at two ends of a dialect chain. And it totally explains the relationship between emerging Indo-Iranian and emerging uh, Balto-Slavic. So there's a number of things about the step hypothesis that fit really well with little problems in uh, linguistic relationships. Um, and, uh, and they're also supported by archaeology. I mean, the, the movement south into uh, Armenia around 2500 BC has been recognized for decades. Uh, by archaeologists is a really important change in the cultures of the Caucasus, but whether it was a migration or just a local emulation of some steppe customs by local people was impossible to determine without DNA, and, and uh, the Southern Art uh, paper is the first paper that really um, uh, supplied that DNA. But it's such a big paper that that discovery is kind of muffled in, in, in the uh, in the rest of all of the other things that were discovered there. So, so just just to be clear, um, you think do you think uh, that the Greeks, uh, the Proto Greeks, uh, were not part of the Corded Ware expansion? They were because I know there were Yamnaya people that were in you know uh, the Hungarian steppe area and also in like uh, the Lower Danube and stuff like that. Do you think that the Proto Greeks and the Proto Illyrians might have been this earlier wave? You know, uh, Proto-Greek is, Proto is hard to figure out. A Greek itself, it's beginning to be clear when that it arrived in uh, the Aegean and in Greece relatively late. There's not a lot of steppe ancestry, if any, in the Aegean area uh, before the uh, Middle Bronze Age. There's none in the Early Bronze Age. Um, and so it doesn't look like people with steppe ancestry got into the Aegean uh, before about 21, 2200 BC, which is the same time that the Dom two horses spread everywhere, <laughs> uh, and with chariotry, perhaps. Uh, so they might have been introducing chariots from the steppes through the Carpathians. Um, uh, there are tell sites that have a lot of horse bones uh, in western Romania, eastern Hungary, um, uh, and they have uh, um, cheek pieces, like Sintashta cheek pieces. Uh, so there may have been proto-Greeks involved in the transfer of chariot technology from the steppes uh, down into uh, the Balkans, um, but by 2000 BC they were they were in Greece. Uh, I do think there was a you know there's a really interesting border. We you talk about expansion from the steppes, but it really had limits. You know the initial expansion stopped uh, in the west at the Tisa River, 
And beyond that, you had this much more admixed population that became uh, corded wear. And it's a much more variable population genetically. And south of that, too, you have to think about south of that. There was also a border south of that that sort of ran through Albania, North Macedonia, Bulgaria. And south of that, you don't see steppe ancestry for another thousand years. It just stayed stuck from 3000 to 2000 BC. Uh, and somewhere along in there is where I think Proto-Greek was emerging. But I think the yeah, yeah. Armenian problem helps to solve the, the Proto-Greek problem because it pulls it towards the steppes. Um, uh, because it looks like the Armenian entered uh, the Caucasus from the north uh, around 2500 BC. It's closely related to Greek, and so Greek must have been out there to the west of it somewhere. All right, so I... I have um just a, this is in my notes, and so I, I do want to ask this question. Uh, neither of us are linguists, but you know you've collaborated with and been around linguists forever. Uh, I have talked to classicists and other people who have told me, look, when you look at ancient Greek, when you look at Sanskrit, when you look at these languages, they just look way more diverged than languages that have been separated for a couple of thousand years. So, for example, you know the Romance languages have been separated for, I don't know, like they've been evolving for like 1,000, 1,500 years. They're quite recognizable to each other. Um, and, you know, I don't know, Sanskrit, Greek, we have them pretty early. Uh, we have Hittite, obviously. Uh, you know, some of these languages are, are, are pretty ancient. Uh, we have a little bit of the Mitanni, you know, some of those like gods and stuff like that. So what's, what's going on here? Um, what do you say to them? Uh, because they they want to they want to say like look this is just like too much to, difference to be explained by some expansion thirty three thousand three thousand five hundred years ago. Yeah, it wasn't three thousand five. Well, I mean, it depends on which expansion you're talking. No, about. Sorry, I meant I meant, I meant I meant BC. I meant BC. So yeah, yeah. that that makes yeah. Yeah. So so the expansion. Yeah. So that's five thousand years ago. Um, and uh, I agree that uh, you know the Romance languages have had a thousand fifteen hundred years to differentiate and they're they're very recognizably uh part of the same clay um give it another 1500 or a thousand years and then give it another 1500 or a thousand years and let's see what happens and that's that's really the time that that we're dealing with i think we have enough time for these changes to happen uh the the one that's really not calibrated well because we don't really know when it happened or how is the separation of anatolian which was uh, appear, appears to retain archaisms that were lost in all of the other uh, Indo-European languages. Well, so let, let me ask you about Anatolia because I saw a I saw a map of distribution of these Anatolian languages like Luvian and stuff and, and Palaean and all these things. They're more shifted to the west in Anatolia. Is that correct? Because because the Hattian language is more to the center east, which is not Indo-European. Perhaps it's related to Orient. I don't know, but it's definitely not Indo-European. And so this to me suggests there's an old model of the Anatolian languages coming in through the Balkans. I don't know. Uh, but in any case, like, can you just speak to that a little bit? Oh, the, you're, you're talking about the geographic distribution of Anatolian languages. It's really hard to know what the geographic distribution was in the very beginning. Um, you know, say going back to 1900 BC, when you begin to see Hittite names uh, mentioned in the Assyrian merchants colony at uh, Kultepe, uh, on the Halis River. And, um, and that's in central Anatolia. But, um, most of the linguists I've talked to, for instance, at the UCLA conference last, uh, November, um, 
We're of the opinion that the Anatolian Indo-European speakers were intrusive in Anatolia, that they, did, they didn't belong there, that they're surrounded by uh, people who were autochthonous um, uh, and spoke Haddock. Uh, they spoke, this is another language we don't really know except by a few names, Kaska, uh, which was north yeah. of the Haddock speakers on the, on the south coast of the Black Sea, and they were the arch enemies of the uh, Hatti speakers. Uh, and they don't seem to have been Indo-European either. They may have ultimately uh, knocked off the Hittite Empire later on. Uh, you have the Hurrian speakers who, who are dis distributed in the same geographic area as the Kuro-Araxes culture, archaeologically, around 3000 BC. Um, and then you have all of these Caucasian languages, Northwest, Northeast, um, and uh, Kartvelian, South Caucasian. It, it, there's not a lot of room there, except in Western uh, Anatolia, for Indo-European languages to be spoken. Uh, but I'm not sure they were originally spoken there either. You know, you you could that Palaic was spoken in the north on the Black Sea. What's it doing up there? You know, maybe it came in from the Balkans. I don't know. Uh, Hittite is spoken in central Anatolia, and Lulian seems to have been originally spoken south of Hittite. Um, so there might be a sort of a north-south line of, of Indo-European languages extending maybe from the south coast up to the north coast of uh, the Anatolian Peninsula. I'm, I'm not sure. It's, it's difficult to map that. There are there are still mysteries in the world, I guess. I mean, we still haven't we still haven't found step ancestry in these Indo-European Anatolians yet. Correct? No, we have not. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, that's I mean, that's look. There, there's things that can. You know, there's more than can be dreamt of in our philosophy at this point. Well, someday maybe we'll figure it out. Um, I want to ask you, um, and I know we've been talking for a while, but I, I just, there's a couple other things I want to ask you about because, all right, um, in your notes to me, um, as we were talking, you have some strong opinions about the origin of Corded Ware and Yemnaya and the arguments that are happening online. Um, Look, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't really understand how some people get so exorcised by some of these. I mean, Look, I'm I'm super interested, but uh, some of the stuff online is out of control. Uh, <laughs> I don't really I don't really get it. So I'm just gonna be honest about that. But I know that there's a lot of passions. Um, so you know, both you and Christian Christiansen uh, uh, seem to be of the opinion that look, we should just say that these earliest step people in Northern Europe. They're basically Yamnaya or very recent. Then there are other people that have a model. Um, I think like Eurogenes, David at Eurogenes, for example, but there's others um, that maybe the Corded Ware or a sister group that has some admixture from some Eastern European hunter-gatherers genetically. We also know the Y chromosome Corded Ware, these early Corded Ware, just for listeners out there, you know, Eastern Poland, Belarus, that area, South Baltic, uh, let's say about 5,000 years ago. These people have R1A, where the Yamnaya had a, uh, an exotic branch of R1B that's mostly in Armenia now. Um, okay, so you know, in your notes, you have a lot of comments about this. Just, just talk to me about this thing. What your opinion is? Yeah. So one, I, I'm interested in, as you are in in the passion uh, that attaches to this argument, and I'm not sure what the source of it is. Uh, um, it seems to me like there is a strong resistance to having uh, Indo-European origins be in the steppes and having and particularly having it be steppe nomads uh, and this may be because steppe nomads have been used throughout history 
as a representation of crude, brutal barbarians like the Dothraki in the in the Game of Thrones, you know, and uh, who are an absurd imitation of of nomads. Uh, but I, I, I'm not. Maybe that's it. That, that you don't want to trace your linguistic ancestry to to nomads, but. Uh, that would be a, a really kind of ridiculous reason to to make these very. Um, I I think the the arguments about this are um, don't have much uh, validity. Uh, that number one, corded ware is has sixty seventy percent depending on the individual you look at step ancestry, and the suggestion was that maybe uh, part. Uh, some minority of corded ware individuals, a minority, uh, have a, another form of ancestry that's maybe from the Baltic, but it could also be from uh, Ukraine Neolithic. Um, and what they're looking at is an excess of EHG in a few samples in a minority of corded ware individuals. Um, and then they're, they, they use that minority to say, well, all of corded ware is... Uh, maybe uh, not inherited from Yamnaya, doesn't have direct Yamnaya ancestry. Maybe there was no Yamnaya uh, uh, migration into uh, Central Europe. It was just parallel processes and uh, siblings, as you say. Uh, I think the evidence shows that um, uh, Yamnaya is earlier than quoted with. Number one, there's very good radiocarbon data that show uh, the earliest Yamnaya dates are late fourth millennium. Uh, the earliest quoted where dates are early early um, uh, early fourth millennium and, and the late Yamnaya ones are, are late fourth um, millennium and the 30, 3300 BC opposed to 2900 BC and um, so first Yamnaya is earliest it could have been the parent of corded ware corded ware has 60 70 percent Yamnaya ancestry uh, there's IBD that hasn't been published yet um, that shows that Yamnaya people were the direct uh, ancestors of corded ware people uh, and also, the finally, the excess of EHG that's talked about. This is discussed in another uh, lost section of two or three paragraphs in the Southern Art Paper, uh, where uh, uh, Lazaridis talks about this specifically and says, uh, this excess of EHG ancestry is easily within the variation of Yamnaya and could easily have been delivered uh, from directly from Yamnaya ancestry. There's no reason to invoke uh, a ghost population from the forest steppe which has been picked up in the Hegarty paper. Uh, he has completely bought the idea that there was a ghost population in the forest steppe that delivered much of this ancestry to Corded Ware. And uh, I'm with uh, Christian Christensen that, that we should just admit that Corded Ware has primarily uh, young Naya ancestry. Um, it's variable uh, across uh, Corded Ware. But there are some almost pure Yamnaya individuals all the way up in Latvia. There are almost pure uh, Yamnaya individuals uh, all over the range of Corded Ware except for Switzerland. Um, so um, I think it's, if you just look at the data, it's pretty clear that uh, Corded Ware derives genetically largely from Yamnaya. There's one, there's one other argument in the uh, horse domestication paper by Labrado. Uh, they said that the corded ware horses are local North European horses. And if Yamnaya had rode into uh, uh, Central and Northern Europe, they should have rode in on steppe horses. So you should see steppe horse DNA in corded ware horses, and you don't see that. Now, all of their corded ware horses were from one site up in the mountains of Germany, not a very good place for horses. Um, and 
a reanalysis of their data uh, in a paper Meyer et al. out of the Reich lab um, has shown, it's published in the cell, uh, has shown that they get much better fits uh, to Labrado et al.'s data than Labrado et al. did themselves uh, using a different algorithm. Uh, and the best fitting model shows about 20% step ancestry in these same corded whale horses from the mountainside in Germany. Uh, so um, if you put that together with the evidence for riding pathologies in Yamnaya individuals, then I think you can make a case that Horseback riding was involved in the spread of Yamnaya ancestry uh, from the steppes up into corded ware in Central and Northern Europe. Yeah, I mean, the whole domestic animal, uh, you know, inheritance and admixture patterns are kind of strange. I'm going to get to that. I want to I talk about that real quick. But I want to say you said something about IBD, identity by descent. Mm -hmm. And um, I know I know about this uh, from um, uh, from I think Nick Patterson uh, told me about this work uh, a while yes. ago. And so. Uh, that basically means there are near relatives that you guys are finding uh, across these archaeological cultures. So one thing that we do is we look at admixture percentages and we create these population graphs, et cetera, et cetera, which you guys are finding with the ancient DNA and the low coverage IBD uh, analyses are relatives, relatives across the step, relatives across cultures. Uh, you're finding kinship networks, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. IBD, there's uh, the, the DNA itself, analyses of the autosomal DNA can give you, can show if you're a first degree, a second degree, or a third degree relative. And that goes out to uh, grandparents or maybe great grandparents and cousins. Um, and then beyond that, first cousins, uh, and then beyond that range of relationships, you can't really see it using standard genetic methods, but using IBD, you can. Uh, and then, then you can say these people are relatives. Uh, they they share an ancestor that's not uh, a father or a grandfather, uh, but they share an ancestor that's three or four generations farther back. And uh, but they're still relatives, and that's an important thing to be able to say. And we've we've seen now uh, shared IBD uh, segments between individuals that are buried in. And can you believe this? Individuals that are buried in Slovakia, Yamnaya individual in Slovakia, and a Yamnaya individual in almost in Mongolia, in the Altai, share a common ancestor that's about five generations back. And they're separated by 5,000 kilometers. It's, it's, it's this huge distance. Uh, and, and yet they share IBD. So, so they definitely uh, had a common ancestor. And their relatives. Yeah. So I, I, on the domestication part, um, one thing I want to bring out, um, I think we've talked about this before, but if we haven't, I'll bring it up again. Anders Bergstrom's paper from a couple of years ago about dogs. Um, uh -huh. They had they had some of the dogs from your sample. And yeah. I want to close up this conversation with the dogs of war and all that stuff. They had some <laughs> samples from, from, your, from your dogs. And they didn't find very much step. I mean, the dogs in Europe, the modern dogs in general are disproportionately European. These European Anatolian dogs. Uh, and also a little bit about Baltic. So there are synthesis of Baltic and Anatolia. There was also a step dog. Uh, step dogs are distinct. Those are your samples that you and your wife uh, got. And um, the one place in the world that they find a, a, an appreciable amount of step dog ancestry now, though, outside the step, is in China. And so that to me is suggesting, I mean, what was going on with Indo-Europeans in China? We haven't talked about this. Um, and you probably know Christopher Beckwith's work. 
Um, there are weird things in the Ordos uh, in that for the listeners, like there's a, a loop, the Ordos plain, um, you know, early Chinese civilization. We know it comes out of Hanya, uh, Hainan. Uh, we know the Shang dynasty and all this stuff. They have these light war chariots. Those light war chariots, we know where they got them from. They got them from my forefathers. Like, let's be let's be real about it, you know? Yeah. So I was like, did they, did they like, was it through the internet? No, they were like, they, there were people there that were, you know, probably teaching them or mercenaries or what. And so um, do you have any opinions of uh, contacts between, I mean, and we have genes from Mongolia. There were Indo-Iranians there, Iranians, you know, that the, those fractions decreased later with a resurgence of, you know, Mongolic to, to Yusik ancestry. So there was a lot of stuff going on in the, in the East with Indo-Europeans. I mean, Tokarians are pretty famous because they're so exotic. But um, do you have anything to say about that? Like, any thoughts? Well, there's uh, right at the beginning in the initial expansion for that brought a Yamnaya people out to the Altai, where they're the Afanasievo culture. Um, there is an Afanasievo grave that we have DNA from that's in uh, central Mongolia that has IBD relationships uh, with a uh, Afanasievo individual back in the Altai. And this guy is way out there to the east. Uh, from regular Afana. He's well beyond the Afanasievo culture area. Uh, but it's an isolated um, uh, migration. Uh, it's It probably didn't result in uh, any demographic change in the area where he went, but if there's one, there's more. Uh, and there's a lot of DNA coming out of later graves in the Tarim Basin uh, showing step uh, ancestry mixtures so, yeah, I think that people with step ancestry and step dogs uh, probably came right up to the borders of uh, Chinese civilization. And maybe step dogs were more useful there. I, I can see how uh, in Europe, where uh, after the Quoted Ware period um, and Bellbeaker and later, um, everybody settled down. Even the people with step ancestry became sedentary. They, didn't, they were not able to maintain a mobile lifestyle. Uh, in forested Europe, it's just better suited to agriculture. So this very mobile economy that was introduced with corded ware settled down pretty rapidly, and that's when they switched back to local European dogs, who uh, maybe were better suited to being on a farm uh, than the step dogs were. And the step dogs were maybe better, more useful out on the uh, northwestern frontiers of China, um, and so they were maintained there. Yeah, yeah, no, there's there's so many so many paths we could go down. So um, I've had you know I've had you for a while. So like let's let's talk about um, a couple of years ago. You know you have this book tentatively titled Dogs of War. I know that you know you're working on it, and you know there's no like end date, I guess. But you know, uh, like tell us about what's going on with that because like people people want to know. Inquiring minds. Yeah, so so I'm still working on it. I've got a couple of chapters written that I can write without knowing. There's a there's a big um, Yamnaya. DNA paper pending from the Reich lab. And obviously I couldn't write that book until I knew what that paper was going to say. <laughs> and, uh, and it's taken a while, but it's, it's coming along. Uh, yeah, so there, there uh, is a major progress has been done. And I think that we might see a paper, you know, sometime maybe before Christmas. I'm hopeful. I've said that before. But um, <laughs> but can you just can you can you tell me if the paper is shorter? Is it more digestible than the Southern Arc paper? 
Yes, yes. I don't think it will have to be broken into three parts. Um, so, so uh, yeah, we're, we're trying to do that. Um, uh, I think there's enough self-awareness among this group of authors that, that the really big ones are, are hard to digest. And, and, uh, and, and consequently, people don't really refer to them. You know, they're, they're, um, I mean, there's, obviously, they refer to them to a certain extent. But it's easier to refer to them if the, if the individual discoveries are, are separated from each other. Uh, so I think this one, there's going to be, there is going to be two papers. Um, but uh, uh, the, the biggest one is still not going to be as big as the Southern Ark. Okay. Well, I mean, that, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Because, you know, that'll be, that'll be easier. So uh, one thing, uh, you know, let me just, I want to ask you this because like, I thought about this for a while and I don't know what to think about it. Uh, you know, I talked to Alice Evans. She's a economic historian uh, about patriarchy, uh, patrilineal societies. And, you know, obviously Eurasian nomads are generally patrilineal. We got all these Y chromosomes. Um, so, you know, you talked about R1B, there's the exotic branch. I mean, I'll say it's not really exotic. It's just the old branch associated with Yamnaya. There's another R1B that's really common in Western Europe. There's R1A, there's a the Western type of R1A that's, you know, common in Slavs. And there's a branch in Scandinavia with the bad luck people. And then there's my, you know, my family's branch, R1A, Z90. We got all these Y chromosomes that are just exploding in star phylogeny. Star phylogeny is just demographic expansion. Um, what do you think about why you see this with Indo-Europeans and nomads? Like, do you have a hypothesis? I know you're a, you know, empirical scientist, archaeologist, but theoretically, like, what's going on here? Because you don't see this in the Middle East. You don't see this in China until relatively recently, um, historically, you know, but on the step, you see these, like, and then replacements. And you also see it in even uh, Germany with I-1. I-1 shows up 1800 BC, and now it's the dominant one in Scandinavia. Okay, so I think the important thing is the is the, uh, the series of replacements. It's not just the expansion, it's the replacement that, that attracts people's attention. So uh, there was a particular kind of R1B that spread with Yamnaya, um, Z2103, uh, and that spread up to the Tiza River. Uh, and then when Cornetware was formed, beyond that uh, boundary, uh, the, there were a variety of different um, y um, haplogroups in the beginning, according to paper by uh, Papach et al. And, and there's a new one uh, by Hawk et al. in a uh, book edited uh, uh, by Thomas Olander. Um, and uh, in the beginning of Cordedware, there's actually quite a lot of variety in Y haplogroups. Um, but they settle in late Cordedware on R1A. And I think that that represents. Uh, this is what, I, and then when Bell Beaker expands out of corded wear, the corded wear haplogroups are replaced by uh, yet another L51, a, a different haplogroup. And, and so as step ancestry expanded into Europe, it did so under the guise of a series of replacement um, uh, Y haplogroups. And, and I think that what was happening, and this is my own theory, I haven't convinced everybody of this by a long shot, but I think that what was happening is that in the uh, in the steps when Yamnaya was formed, being buried under a Kurgan was reserved for an elite, and the people who were building the Kurgans had different Y groups. They were there, but they're not documented because they weren't allowed to be buried under a Kurgan. 
when they got to the edge of the expansion, they escaped from the hegemony of these R1Bs and the R1As did the same thing. They recreated the same system of hegemony for one uh, a male patrilineage. These are competing male patrilineages, which is quite common among nomads. And then when the further expansion happened west, that was done by yet another competing male patrilineage that established the same thing. And it wasn't until you get to Unitich and, and the beginning of the classical Bronze Age in Central Europe that you really begin to get some diversity in why haplogroups again, and that system finally falls apart. Um, but during the initial expansion of, young, of steppe ancestry, I think there were these uh, competing uh, uh, male lineages who got buried under the Kurgans or under the Court of Graves, Graves, and, and, and the people who weren't the right people uh, didn't get buried there. Uh, they were just excluded socially. I see. I see. That's it's almost like, um, yeah, you're you're basically suggesting there's just like an ascertainment bias in the Y chromosomes that we see. Yes, exactly. I think that okay. they were more diverse than what we see archaeologically. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. So I've had you for a while. Um, closing thoughts. It's been a couple of years. It's going to be a couple of more years. I know. Um, you know, David. Uh, you know, reading your book all those years ago, and you've been involved in this for so long now. Um, all these papers are coming. Down. I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches, right? It's like too much. It is. Uh, it is. You know, uh, I mean, it must be weird. You know, I didn't know that this was going to happen when I started looking at um, uh, Indo-European language connections with archaeology. In the when I was a graduate student in the seventies, it was not a popular thing to do, uh, and. I was quote, sort of a fringe. I I, th I do think I was operating on the fringes there of of, uh, of the central concerns of archaeology, and now it's become a central concern. And so I'm kind of lucky that the that the uh, advances in methodology have swung the whole field around uh, to incorporate what I was doing. Um, but it's amazing to me to see this sudden attention on, on a subject that was really avoided by archaeologists for generations. Yeah, I mean, I think I told you this story about my uh, my former boss, Spencer Wells. Uh, I think it was the late 1990s when he first started doing M17 mutation in R1A. Uh, and I think he was doing a job talk at Oxford. I think it was at Oxford or Cambridge, one of the two. And they asked like about you know how this spread. And he was like, oh, well, probably step nomads. And a bunch of archaeologists, I think, got up and were like, you know, we don't believe in any of that anymore. Like, that's that's very outmoded. So timing matters. That's all I got to say. Timing yeah. matters. <laughs> it does. It's very interesting to be here now, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's just a fascinating feel. It's hard to keep up with anymore. Yeah. Well, um, I really appreciate you um, just taking time out to talk and helping us keep up. Um, and, you know, I'll be reading the papers and uh, you know, getting your uh, you know your wisdom and experience. I mean, uh, all I can say is I think you know the listener, my listeners, and myself. Uh, you know, we share your infectious enthusiasm. We're very excited. Um, you know, uh, science is hard, and a lot of times you're searching in the dark for data, and now the data is coming to us. And I think the the thing that I would say is uh, it's on us now to interpret it and understand it and figure out like what our ancestors did, uh, how it happened. Uh, we have the technology. We have this ancient DNA technology. We have the computation. Uh, hopefully we have time. You have time now. 
Um, yeah. And, you know, I think one thing I would ask people is like, let's take the temperature down. Um, there's a little harsh words that go back and forth sometimes. And it really uh, is a little difficult for me to uh, understand where that's coming from because uh, ultimately we're all in it for the same thing. We're in it for the truth, right? And I right. think we're getting there. We're getting there. So just like, just be cool, people. Be cool. <laughs> uh, read the papers. And let's have our disagreements civilly, you know, uh, because ultimately we have the same goal, even if we have different possible paths to get to that goal. That's what I would say. That's uh, that's absolutely true, Razib. I, I I agree with everything you just said. Yeah, just be cool and uh, keep working. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Uh, it was it was a great conversation. I hope you guys enjoyed it, and I will see the rest of you online. And David, uh, same with you. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, Razib. It, it was a great pleasure. This podcast was brought to you by Orchid, the only whole genome sequencing company focused on embryos. You know that genetics plays a big role in our health. 30% of neurodevelopmental diseases, 10 to 40% of pediatric cancers, and more than 30% of birth defects have a known genetic cause. Families considering IVF use ORCID to see which of their embryos have these conditions and work with doctors to choose their lowest risk embryo so they can have a successful pregnancy and a healthy baby. Check them out at orchidhealth.com and use code RAZIB, R-A-Z-I-B, when signing up to skip the wait list. This podcast for kids.